Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. It's December 13th, 2018. And on this week's show, how to build relationships in the biz, a surprising draw for box offices, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everybody, it is our last show with all of us here before the holidays, um, I think, right? Ho, 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 and it's 12-13. That's it, like, it must be a lucky day. Yeah. Uh, is it? Oh, I guess so. What are you guys, uh, guys going to be doing for the holidays? You, you're out of here, right? Uh, yeah, I'm seeing my uh, my niece in Pennsylvania uh, for like three or four days, and that's about it. If anyone has any New Year's plans, I don't. So uh, now I don't have any New Year's plans, Eric. Yeah. So okay. So now's your chance, guys, to get us. We'll come to your house, and we come with a pop-up party box, and it just, <laughs> um, you know, we bring the party. That's not what you might think it is. No, it's no, just no. Like just like a, and, that's what I mean. Like it's yeah. a box that comes with everything you need for a party. <laughs> so obviously, you want us at your place on New Year's. So please invite us. This offer applies to sex robots only. Right? <laughs> yeah, we can bring those. No, they'll take yes. real girls as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what am I doing? Well, I'm off next week to Los Angeles, beautiful Los Angeles, new sort of home of no film school. Um, and uh, not for no film school, though, for my other job with my good friend and boss, Robert Redford. <laughs> Do you know that you say it every time <laughs> you say is this a is this, this is a running joke for you, right? You don't refer to him as your good friend and run, your new boss every time you say the name Robert Redford? or No, is, usually just my good good best friend. It's okay. just, yo, Bob, what's up? Yeah, Bob. Yeah. Bobby? Yeah, so he and I are going to hang out for a few days <laughs> at the Sundance <laughs> offices in Los Angeles. And then um, I'm going on a trip to Mexico. I'm really into Mexico this year. That's not, Second trip to Mexico. And actually, I'll be in New Orleans for, th- oh. for like four days next week. That's cool. Yeah, so I will that's be like, there. That's the bye thing bye. you drop after. That's very the least. Well, that's not really holiday related. It's it's like um, using vacation days to use vacation days. And Hey, man, you know, that counts. That counts. I totally so agree. It's, um, it's my own holiday, I guess. I'm going to New Orleans for four days. It's always days. a holiday in New Orleans. That's true, and I'll 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 be alone. So if anybody wants to, uh, <laughs> so. if anybody wants to hang out there again, but will you have your party in a box with you? <laughs> oh, I'm bringing it. Yeah, no, it fits under the uh, overhead companion <laughs> carrier. <laughs> you know, for for many of us, the holidays can be the loneliest time of year. <laughs> as, as, but as for I can, Eric, it's just like any other day. As I can attest, I'm doing all these things, but they're all alone. I actually, uh, yesterday, I wrote up a, I don't know if you've edited this yet, this little article, but uh, I'll plug it again. Um, There is a film festival that is now designed around lonely people. I saw that. We haven't put it up yet, but it will be by the time this episode is up. What does that mean? Well, it's a film festival for lonely people. So if you have a short that deals with loneliness in any capacity, uh, it's you submit it, and then if it gets accepted, then it gets put on this website and the website is sort of a uh holistic like emotional support website slash film festival sort of thing so it's not actually an in-person film festival so even the film festival is alone there is there is a physical uh festival portion of it but Mm. then the films will be held (laughs) on the website for two years wow Ah. is it called the eric lures national film festival it's amazing each project is just a one-person team (laughs) (laughs) nobody else collaborated on any of the projects there are no q a's because no one's in the audience it's called the unlonely film festival and yes eric is the only judge (laughs) (laughs) they lock him in a room for two weeks straight and he has to watch all these shorts Mm. wow i feel 
really sad now. <laughs> so anyways, let's, happy holidays, let's, everybody. Let's jump back a bit uh, because actually, you know, I'm feeling a little hot in here. Ooh. Are you guys feeling hot? Well, that's because I was just playing that Nelly song a couple minutes ago. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. as it's you do every morning. Here. I'm wearing my, <laughs> my parka inside. Well, this set of news makes me feel like it's summer 2018 again. Ow! So first off, let's talk some MoviePass, a company that continues to be in existence no matter how hard it tries. <laughs> if you can't remember all the way back to summer, then uh, you might not remember that MoviePass's parent company, Helios and Matheson, posted a $137.2 million loss uh, last quarter, which led to random outages in service, surge pricing, and sweeping changes to their payment plan models. These changes didn't go over so well with their customers. Eric and I both left the service, and we're now former MoviePass subscribers. Recovering is how I say. Yes. So currently, MoviePass lets subscribers see one movie per calendar day, and that's limited to three per month, but it's also with a limited selection of movies. So major blockbusters, for example, don't appear on the app until several weeks after their release, if at all. Uh, in New York, it's kind of even worse. There's really not many places you can actually go see movies anymore with the service, no matter how big the release is. If you're still a subscriber, then uh, get ready for some big changes, because after months of research, MoviePass has sent out their solution for 2019, a new monthly plan that offers three options, select, all access, and red carpet. People who are still using the service may be disappointed, though, to see that the models all have the same three-movie cap. The difference seems to be that the more money you pay, the more screenings you'll have access to. How exactly this works out for the company, who really knows? The select plan is basically the current plan, which for $9.95 a month, you get a limited movie selection. All access broadens the movie slate for $14.95 a month, and red carpet includes an IMAX or 3D movie, one per month for $19.95 a month. Oh yeah, and they have introduced a policy called geography-based pricing, where you have to actually pay more for a subscription if you live in a densely populated area, aka a city. So according to Wired, the select selection likely won't improve much. MoviePass plans to eventually base availability on what it calls an inventory-driven model, in which movie theaters can dictate MoviePass showtimes based on which seats they most need to fill. In other words, the seats no one wants. It's getting rough, I think, for MoviePass. Getting. <laughs> I, I like that it's so complicated, though, that it feels like a real business, finally. Yeah. You know? I can't understand it at all. Well, real business or not, the question is, do you trust MoviePass enough to purchase a year-long subscription? If you do, you can get a discounted rate. But after a year of unannounced and volatile policy changes, the company is going to have a hell of a time winning back the trust of its former consumers. And let's not also forget about new services that have sprouted out of theater chains themselves, such as AMC Stubbs A-List, which for $20 per month gives you three movies per week, including IMAX and 3D showings. That's a much better deal all around. So to read more about those changes, you can go on the site and check out the little diagrams that MoviePass has put together to uh, further explain their brilliant new plan. I wonder if this will be the final nail in the coffin. But they seem, like you said, they seem to keep coming back every single time. I thought Gotti would have killed them, but the movie, not the mobster. <laughs> he could have too. Yeah, exactly. But no, they just keep coming. I don't know how like deep into film Twitter 
uh, Best Supporting Actress, John Travolta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, my favorite. One of my favorite tweets of the year, I guess, of the award season so far. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody created a Twitter account just to make up a fake LA Film Critics Award, and they said John Travolta, Best Supporting Actress for Gotti. And people were like, "What?" Because it looked just like the official tweets. Yeah, but it was not. They were all rolling out with the. Uh, it was it was the day that all the LA Films Critics Circle uh, tweets were coming out. Yeah, and it just sprouted. <laughs> that up. one popped up. <laughs> Oh, Gotti. God, I saw that movie 90 times in theaters. Really? Yeah, I loved wow. it so much. Was it free every time with MoviePass? Oh, yeah. Um, also, if you do go to that article, you may notice that in the graphic that is included, which I took from a screenshot from the email I got uh, about these new services, the uh, text doesn't say starting at 995 or starting at 1495. It says staring at fourteen ninety five, <laughs> or staring at nine ninety five. They're very tricky. I'm staring at them, trying to figure out what the fuck <laughs> they mean. Very, very tricky with this. My, th- I think the final nail in the coffin for me with MoviePass was the email they sent out of a dog. Yeah, I remember that. And they said that was like their public relations yeah, manager. Yeah, it was or like something. their some. It was their some dog pun in chief, and it yeah. was like apologizing, saying that they were doing the best they could or something. Yeah, he was a bad <laughs> dog, oh, and no. blah blah blah. Yeah, it was it was just like this is not how you're gonna win me back, guys. Anyways, moving on. Second on the docket for me this week is a brief concern that we haven't really even entered into the major award season yet, and we've already gotten our first major snub. That's right. It looks like some film called Mandy will not be nominated for an award it majorly deserves. Now, have I, have either of you two heard of this film? I've uh, I've seen it, but I haven't heard of it. Is that the um like the Mandy Moore biopic? Oh. Did you just say you've seen it but you haven't heard of it? <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> That's exactly what I said. <laughs> As in my ears are always closed, but I've watched the film. Yeah, I have I have heard of it. Well, it is a movie, and for some, uh, the argument could be made that 2018's psychedelic horror masterpiece, Mandy, deserves to pop up in multiple categories over the course of this award season. The film is unlike anything we've ever really seen before, or heard, I guess, (laughs) with director Panos Cosmatos' insane vision brought to life by hallucination-inducing cinematography from Benjamin Loeb, featuring Nicolas Cage's probably most unhinged performance ever. That's a... That's a tough one to really cement, but uh, I have to ask for for your favorite scene of the year. Is it coming from this movie? I think probably. Okay, then I can't choose one from this. Yeah, you can. There's okay. so many good scenes. All right, we'll we'll discuss offline. Which do you scene. know which one? We're, yeah. I think we're both. We both. It's gonna be the bathroom scene. Yeah, it's the bathroom yeah. scene. Okay, I'll let you have it. I'll <laughs> choose. Something. I also feel like that would be a good post that would get a lot of clicks. Nicholas Cage's top ten most unhinged performances ever. That's probably of 2018. Of 2018, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I I think for me it's tied between this and in the Vampire's Kiss. Oh, Have you guys seen no, that movie? I haven't seen that. No. Oh my mm-hmm. god! Okay. <laughs> wow. He is, I it's indescribable, really. It, I don't I don't know. Watch that movie because it's not good, but it's uh, amazing. Hmm. Anyways, back to Mandy. Perhaps the most deserving of an award, however, is a truly metal and horrifying score from the late great Johan Johansson. His scores to The Theory of Everything, Sicario, Arrival, and Prisoners brought him nominations from the Academy a handful of times, but he was never recognized for anything more. Mandy would prove to be the final score for the esteemed composer, who tragically took his own life in February 2018, weeks after the film made its premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. 
Unfortunately, as confirmed by IndieWire earlier this week, his soundtrack has been disqualified from the vote because, quote, it was released on VOD before it completed its qualifying run. When asked to elaborate on the disqualification, a representative for the film told IndieWire a qualifying run means the film is released for one week in Los Angeles with a minimum of three screenings per day. Mandy became available on VOD before the completion of its one-week run and was deemed ineligible as a result. It's really a travesty that Johansson won't be in the running, and it's a clear indication that a new generation of distribution demands a rehaul of these rules from the Academy. It just doesn't make sense when movies, indie movies, are coming out now on VOD and in theaters many times at the same time. Uh, and it's really sad. Yeah, didn't you mention a few weeks ago that they had the producers of the film had like regretted uh, going on VOD day and date on the same day because they should have had more theatrical grosses and would have more people come to the theater? Yeah, it? because the theater was doing really well. Or, sorry, the the movie was doing real well in theaters, and uh, they just missed an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listeners can't see me rolling my eyes, but they are rolling hard. I feel like we've had so many stories in the past year or two about Oscar fails. Yeah, this is not a new thing. Like, this has been something that's been going on for years, ever since. there was the thing about the documentary rules changing after um, O.J. Made in America. Mm -hmm. No, is that it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, One, and I mean, changing, changing, changing. It's like, then they go and they try and announce a new category. (laughs) You know, for like right, best popular exactly. film. Without having That's, any criteria. Right. Like, oh, whoops. Yeah, it seems like the Academy is more caught up in its own complicated rules than in actual cinema appreciation. And now, to add insult to injury, this year's ceremony is currently without a host. Did you guys hear this? Yeah. Yep. Comedian Kevin Hart pulled out over controversy over past homophobic remarks. And now the Academy is struggling to find a host, even reportedly toying with the idea of having no host or using an ensemble of several hosts. It'll be interesting to see kind of how it plays out. I'm thinking, like, outside of the opening monologue and a few skits in the middle there, you could kind of go without a host, right? Or have an ensemble ca- like group. I think so, too, although I feel for those producers trying to figure that out, like, a few weeks before the ceremony. Yeah. I think my favorite suggestion so far has been Werner Herzog. Oh, my God. <laughs> the Oscars? Wow. That yeah. would be amazing. Only if he did running commentary the entire time. Yeah. Wow. He hasn't seen any of the movies. Nope. <laughs> They'd comment on the. I'd like to hear his fashion comments <laughs> on the red carpet. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of, of awards, we'll continue with that. Uh, the nominations for the Golden Globes came out last week. And while many of the award season frontrunners were further recognized, there were some surprises. And what's interesting to know is that the Golden Globes are viewed as a pretty strong pronosticator of the Oscars, with one caveat being that the Globes have separate lead categories for comedy slash musical and drama. The Oscars do not segregate based on genre, meaning that there were 20 lead actors with nominations at the Golden Globes morning and not what will ultimately be 10 at the Academy Awards. So you should keep that in mind when perusing this list. Like, will Emily Blunt and Lin-Manuel Miranda receive Oscar nominations for their roles in Mary Poppins Returns? Not likely, and maybe, but could Vice still dominate at the Academy Awards like it did with the Golden Globe nominations? Possibly. So one thing that struck me about this year's nominations was the fact that A Star is Born and Bohemian Rhapsody both received nominations in the Best Drama categories and not Best Musical. Really? Yeah. Now, personally, 
I actually think this is the right call, but it has led to some debates uh, in, in very, very small circles uh, as to what constitutes a musical and why the category still exists in the first place. Because in those films, the lead actors play musicians who happen to play and sing music. So does that make the film they're starring in a musical, or is it a drama in which music is simply a part of the plot? Does it change things if the music is an organic piece of the story? Like, are they traditionally breaking out into song? Or And also, does it change things if a film has music written specifically for the film? So A Star is Born features original music, while for obvious reasons, Bohemian Rhapsody does not. Uh, so there have been previous instances where, like, Ray and Walk the Line were nominated for Best Musical mm. slash Comedy. You have to say it that way, I guess. Uh, whereas A Star is Born was considered a drama, not a musical. Which I actually think is the right call because they don't break out into song. They are singers performing, you know, as is their occupation in the film. And so I felt like that was the right call. But some people were confused by that going into drama and Bohemian Rhapsody falling into that same category. Meanwhile, whatever happens with musicals or dramas at the Oscars, even if it turns out to be hashtag Oscars so male this year, as it looks like it's shaping up to be, the box office is taking a different direction. The New York Times reported this week on a study by the Creative Artist Agency and Shift 7, which is a company started by the former U.S. Chief Technology Officer Megan Smith. The study found that the top movies from 2014 to 2017 starring women, earned more than male-led films. And this was true among low- and high-budget films across the board, and really surprising, you know, kind of against conventional wisdom. What's more, the research also found that films that pass the Bechdel test, which measures whether two female characters have a conversation about something other than a man... (laughs) I mean, what's the point? But, you know, uh, outperformed those that flunked the Bechdel test. In fact, researchers found that no film has made one billion dollars or more without passing the Bechdel test since 2012. Wow. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, a San Diego State University study also found that the number of female protagonists with speaking roles in top films actually dropped in 2017 from the previous year. But as The Times points out, the new statistics from CAA suggest that the makers of those films might be hurting in their earnings. Womp womp. So the takeaway is, if you've been working on a female-fronted screenplay, now might just be the time to try to get it made. I'm now going to think back to all the films that have passed a billion dollars since 2012 and realize that they passed the Bechdel test, like Jurassic World and, I don't know, all yeah, the big blockbusters only, must pass the Bechdel test. Only films where two women discussed dinosaurs made over <laughs> $1 billion. No, I guess all, every Marvel film since 2012 and everything, I guess That's they right. all pass. That's huh? right. Um, and now here's Charles Hain with some tech news. Hey, everybody. This is Charles here with tech news. So our biggest tech news story of the week is Adobe on Windows will now write ProRes. Like 4% of you are like, hooray, that's huge. And the rest of you are like, why is that exciting? I know this because I excitedly told my post-production editing class this week and one, actually, I'm not even going to lie, not even one student was like, yay. Everybody was like, why, why is that big news? So here's why this is big news. In the Mac world, ProRes is the default codec. You're shooting red, you're making dailies, you make them to ProRes. You edit in Final Cut, you edit in Premiere, you edit in Resolve, you're using ProRes. ProRes is that master codec that everybody's using all the time as an intermediate for editing. They're using 444 for mastering. It is flexible and robust and a default standard. However, while They've been on fire this year and are really taking pros seriously again. For a few years there, Apple wasn't really making very strong pro machines. And a lot of pros jumped over to Windows because you could buy for around the same price. Not significantly cheaper once you factor in power, like the power of the graphics card. But for around the same price or just slightly less, you could build a 
uh, edit workstation or a color grading workstation that would have a lot of power. And best of all, you, the last time Mac did an NVIDIA GPU machine was 2013. I know because I still have it. Um, everything else was AMD and a lot of pros still love NVIDIA. So 2014, 2015, 2016, you're building a edit suite. A lot of people looked at Windows really seriously to get that like sweet NVIDIA GPU power. But the big thing was always, but you can't write to ProRes. And clients always want ProRes. Even if you go Windows, if your client, the producer, the DP, is still working on a, on a Mac, they're going to want you to deliver ProRes. And that was the big frustration. There are all these, like, terrible workarounds. Like, I know a couple post houses would, like, keep a Mac around and then they'd, like, edit. Because you could edit in ProRes in Premiere and Resolve. You just couldn't write the file. You couldn't create a new file when you rendered out when you were done. So they'd, like, work on their Windows machine and then they'd fire up the project on a Mac when they were done to do the render. They'd keep, like, one Mac around for doing that. Um, there are also these terrible software applications that would do it, but they were all like reverse engineered. Like somebody went in and like tried to figure out what ProRes is by tearing it apart without collaborating with Apple, and they never worked very well. The only thing that ever worked really well for ProRes on Windows was Scratch from Assimilate, and they worked, I believe, closely with Apple, and they feel like they really got it working very well where you could write ProRes files quite simply on a Windows machine. Now, many of you in our readership are arguing, what about DNX? What about Cineform? There are other codecs. There totally are. But you got to remember, a lot of times you don't get to dictate that, right? If you are hired by a music video production company to do their dailies or to do their final color or to do their edit and they do everything ProRes, they're going to want you to work in the codec they're familiar with. People are very reluctant to change. So even though, yes, DNX is great, and in some ways ProRes sort of riffs on DNX, and even though Cineform is really wonderful. Uh, this news from Adobe, that Adobe in Premiere, not only can you edit ProRes, which you've been able to do forever, on a Windows machine you can now export to ProRes 4.2.2 and 4.4.4 is huge news from Adobe. Adobe and Apple apparently collaborated on it, which is also very interesting because, you know, if you're Apple, you are not incentivized to make this easier because this sells Windows machines, not Macs. So it's actually kind of a like Adobe specifically referenced that they work with Apple on this. I mean, look, this has been a year full of Apple aggressively pursuing professionals again. And this collaboration with Adobe is actually a really nice one. And I'm excited to see it. I haven't tested it yet, but the support is announced. I haven't tested it yet because like most people who work at a facility, I don't update my machine personally until the whole facility updates their machine so I can like take projects back and forth from home. But I will find some machine I can update it on and test it. But I'm super excited to see this happening. Hopefully this means Resolve will soon be exporting on Windows straight to ProRes. Our next story of the week is also Apple and codec related. It's like a big codec-y month. Um, and that is, so we had our story a couple weeks ago about uh, Apple ending support for DNxHR and a few other sort of 32-bit codecs in an upcoming release of Mac OS. And this is not just Final Cut Pro. Like, Final Cut Pro won't support them, but the Mac OS won't support it either. There have been a lot of stories since then. It's been a really interesting time. And then in the last week, there have been a couple of announcements, and uh, we wanted to follow up on the story again. So first off, native OS support is only useful to save developers time. 
So if, if they build the support natively into the OS, that means the developer can take advantage of the frameworks built by Apple and not have to build their own frameworks for dealing with a codec or a technology. So back when QuickTime, the framework, not the software, it's an important distinction. It's very annoying and confusing. They have the same name. Back when QuickTime was the default framework, if you used QuickTime to process video, which Final Cut 7 did and Media Composer used to um, enable the QuickTime framework and Pro Tools did, you could just use all of the frameworks already built by Apple, which is all of these wide variety of codecs, and you could install new codecs and hooray. Super easy and fun. Apple moved over to a 64-bit framework called AV Foundry with uh, OS 10.6 and is now officially with their next OS shutting down the 32-bit QuickTime framework, which means natively in the OS, they're not going to be supporting anything 32-bit. That doesn't mean developers cannot build their own frameworks for working with it. Avid this week on December 10th announced, hey guys, we don't use AV Foundry. We use our own internal media handling technology. We build our own. So Media Composer will continue to support DNX even on a Mac because it's not dependent on the OS frameworks. I think we can reasonably assume that Resolve will do the same thing. Uh, I think we can reasonably assume Final Cut never will, which is fine. Final One of the strengths of Final Cut is how closely it's integrated with the system architecture, but that means that when the system architecture is dropping stuff like DNX and Cineform, so is OS X. Um, and then Apple released sort of a revised knowledge-based article with a much bigger list of what's on its way out and what's coming in, what's going to continue to be supported, including things like Red Raw. Uh, you know, Red Raw is part of AV Foundry, which is great. One of the ways in which this might have affected you is you would have already noticed if you opened certain files in QuickTime X, there's that little converting bar. That is usually a good indicator that AV Foundry doesn't support it. So like DNX already, if you open it in QuickTime X, you get that little converting bar because you can't make QuickTime X natively support DNX the way you could with QuickTime 7. I still love QuickTime 7. It is still my default media handling software. It's going to be very interesting for software profession for post professionals when the next Mac OS comes out because we're opening weird video files all the time. And so I don't know that QuickTime X is going to become my default software handler because I don't want to wait on that converting window. Most of my students have all gone VLC because VLC opens everything. And I'm wondering if VLC is going to become my new default once the original QuickTime 7 is deprecated because it will open things regardless of VLC doesn't only depend upon AV Foundry in order to open things. They actively develop their own frameworks, I believe. Um, so further evolution, we've got, there was also a really great article about this by the blog over Digital Rebellion that we linked to in our article that people who are fascinated about this, um, as I'm sure you all are, because I am, uh, should give a read. All right. Last up this weekend, tech news, Frame.io launched an end-to-end -end post workflow guide, 100,000 words on everything you want to know about post. First off, I have to shout out a caveat on this. I wrote about 10,000 words of this 100,000 words, so fair warning. I'm not neutral about it. I am probably more excited about it than I would be otherwise because I was already sort of like familiar with what they were doing for the last couple months. But what's really exciting about this is that you know, there are a lot of great online resources, No Film School among them, that give you little pictures and pockets of individual workflows, one point here, one step there. This is designed not to be that. This is designed to be one large, curated, structured, continuously edited and improved and revised workflow guide showing you end-to-end -end how to move a project through all stages of post. 
which is pretty exciting. Now, why is Frame.io doing this? Well, in my mind, and I actually think this is a good thing, it's the perfect marketing for Frame.io if you think about it. There's only so many ways you can get people to know about your service. If you don't know Frame.io, it's a work in progress review tool for video. It is a very good one. Uh, it is sort of the market dominant one at the moment, and it's super great. Um, if you don't know about it, how do you get people to know about it? And I think the kind of people who are going to be looking at a post-workflow guide, the kind of people who at 3 in the morning are going to be Googling, looking for answers and finding them in this workflow guide and then reading the next article to start getting ahead on the next stage are the exact kind of people I think Frame.io want to target as customers. So it's one of those examples of like I think Frame.io is making a very savvy decision to provide valuable content to customers as a way of customer acquisition. So I think it's one of those like really nice alignments where you're like, ah, I'm so glad this thing exists. It's the kind of thing that would never happen on its own. Like Wikipedia can't go in this depth. It is the kind of thing that really requires like paid labor to organize and curate. And I'm so glad that Framio was willing to do that. You guys should all take a look. It is live now. It should have lots of stuff and it will continue to be evolved so it should hopefully serve as a reference to people going forward. I am back, Charles again, with Ask No Film School. David Stokem asks, what are the best relationship mapping tools for a business? So this is a great question, but it requires a little bit of context. So first off, relationship mapping is a tool that you see all the time in like sales and customer retention management, CRM. Is it customer retention management, customer recruitment management, CRM? Um, platforms, and it's where a company looks at the entire web of all of their relationships to their current and potential future clients. When you're selling like big multi-million dollar corporate products, it all comes down to trust, and trust is built on that network. So you look at a map of everyone you've worked with and had good experiences with, and it's easier to see potential future clients. You can look at that map and be like, oh, I've worked with these 12 people over and over and over again, and from my mapping, I can tell they know these three other people I've never worked with, but because they know those 12 people I work with all the time, maybe I should reach out to them because they know all these people I've had these great interactions with. So if they go to them for references, it'll be a natural fit. That is relationship mapping. What does this have to do with film? Well, a lot and not very much. The a lot part is there's so much potential here. Film is a business with clients and relationships and the ability to map that would be huge. Like for instance, I would love if I was thinking about like three DPs for a job, I'd love to see like, hey, here's 15 people these DPs have worked with that you've also worked with or you've worked with someone who's worked with. I would love to be able to easily see that in some sort of like mapped system. Yes, I can look up each of the DPs one at a time on Facebook and see if we have overlapping Facebook friends. But even that isn't that great because like I'm Facebook friends with a lot of people I met once. And like forget Twitter. I maybe know 10% of the people I interact with all the time on Twitter. So yes, there are tools for doing that research, but it's hard and labor intensive and there's no way of measuring the strength of those relationships. This is where the opportunity comes in. In the business world, LinkedIn does this really well. Actually, even my friends at like the movie studios use LinkedIn all the time for this exact kind of thing. But film freelancers haven't really gotten onto LinkedIn. Maybe they feel like it's too corporate or who knows, for whatever reason, like most of the DPs I know don't have LinkedIn. A lot of the editors I know don't have LinkedIn. 
It's just not, it is not taken off in that world. So what we're really looking for, because the data is messy, the data is all over the place, what we're really looking for in the film industry is a tool that can, you know, scrape data from IMDb and music video database and video static and and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and then build you a map so that when you're looking at those DPs, you're like, oh, here's all the people we've worked with together. And maybe they'll even suggest someone else. Maybe they'll be like, oh, hey, four of your friends have started hiring this DP. Maybe you should look at their reel. Someone please build this. If you are like a coder in college right now who's interested in the film industry, please build this. I will like, I will answer all of your emails if you build this. I will do whatever it takes to get this to happen because I think this is a huge potential. But going back to tech news, this is also the kind of thing that I think could be built on top of a platform that exists. Like Frame.io already has some of this data in terms of mapping out people's relationships to each other. So Frame.io is a potential. KitSplit or ShareGrid, I mean, those are already in some ways social networks of people who use gear together. Um, LinkedIn could decide the entertainment industry. The entertainment industry is small. LinkedIn is probably not going to come for us. But if they did, that's how they should do it. The big problem, it's a very complicated problem to solve because the data in our industry is so messy. Especially, I mean, first off, IMDb data is wildly inconsistent. But then you get beyond that and you start looking at music video database and like commercials and things like that and like, that data is just all over the place. It's very hard to find accurate data profiling, those kind of things. So it's not an impossible problem. It's a potentially lucrative problem. Like I would pay a lot of money regularly to have access to this kind of data when I am hiring. I know a lot of production companies and producers would. Um, I'm sure there's other ways to figure out how to monetize it. So like there isn't, to answer your question, Mr. Stokem. There's not currently a business mapping tool that the film industry uses, but I really think there should be, and I think there's a big opportunity for there to be. Um, interested in working on it with me? Hit me up on Twitter, at Charles Hain. Uh, everybody, I think this is my last one of the holiday season. So Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year. Uh, everybody enjoy it, whether you're in the sunshine or the snow. And now on to some movies opening this week. Damsel is coming out on Hulu. This is one of the best movies I saw at a festival this year, I think. Um, I've seen a lot of good movies at festivals this year, but this was a standout for sure. It's the Zellner Brothers follow-up to Kamiko, Treasure Hunter, and it's a really fun, hilarious, and sometimes actually thrilling ride. It's a Western unlike any other you've seen before. It features some truly outstanding performances by Robert Pattinson and Mia Waskowska. Even both of the directors try their hand at acting and manage to create a pair of memorable characters themselves. The film takes place in the Wild West, circa 1870. Samuel Alabaster, an affluent pioneer, ventures across the American frontier to marry the love of his life, Penelope. But as his group traverses the West, the once simple journey grows treacherous, blurring the lines between hero, villain, and damsel. There's an amazing twist in the film that will surely blow you away. Uh, and you can listen to a great interview I did with the Zellners back in Sundance in Utah called The Zellner Brothers on why you need to do something new with every film you make. And they talk a lot about this film and their entire creative process. So check that out. We'll have a link to it in the podcast. That was a good post. episode. Now out in limited release theatrically and coming to Netflix, of course, is Roma, widely proclaimed as the best movie of the year. This crazy as it seems... Um, is Alfonso Cuaron's follow-up to the blockbuster CGI orgy that was Gravity. This film has already won many awards and distinctions on the critics' end of the year lists, 
uh, with Cuaron taking home Best Directing Honors and even Cinematography Honors as he shot the film himself from the New York, D.C. and L.A. critic circles. It's been nominated for three Golden Globes, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay, and is clearly on its way to a Best Picture win of some kind, foreign language or not, at the Academy Awards. And that's because it's just, well, excellent in every respect of the word. The film is a semi-autobiographical piece that delves into the life of a middle-class family in Mexico City in the early 1970s. It features a subtle and beautiful performance from its breakthrough lead actress, Yalitza Aparicio, who plays a young maid who struggles with an unplanned pregnancy. This movie deserves to be seen in theaters. One of its most memorable scenes actually takes place in one. But if you can't find it playing near you, then please do watch it on Netflix. Do yourself a solid. And I'll just add that the reason why it feels so different from that blockbuster CGI orgy is because it's a quiet, black and white, um, very personal family drama. And we've said on the show, John has mentioned on the show in the past when he saw it at TIFF that it really has this sort of immersive audio and I finally saw it last weekend and just and I got what you said, John. And I feel like for you listeners, like you, you almost like don't get it until you see it in a theater. So I just want to second or say again that you want to see it in the theater, not just for the visuals, but there's this whole sort of audioscape kind of like I've never experienced before that I don't know you could get at home. Yeah, I can't remember if it was if it is designed for an Atmos theater, but I think I might have seen it in Atmos. I'm not, I'm not positive, but when I saw it at TIFF, I think that the theater had Atmos in it, and it was just, like, crazy. Well, even if you're watching it at home, I recommend trying to see it in the most sort of surroundy sound way as possible, like if you have multiple speakers or headphones. Uh, at midnight tonight, I was going to watch it on my phone, but I guess <laughs> I guess I won't. And opening in theaters on Fridays, If Beale Street Could Talk which is another big award season contender from the director Barry Jenkins, and this is his follow-up to his Oscar-winning feature Moonlight. Based on the book by James Baldwin, it tells the story of a woman in Harlem who desperately scrambles to prove her fiancé innocent of a crime while carrying their first child. It recently won the AFI Movie of the Year and has been nominated for three Golden Globes, including Best Screenplay, Best Motion Picture, and Best Supporting Actress for Regina King. Also on Friday is Vox Lux, Actor-turned-provocateur-director Brady Corbett has an interesting offering for us coming out this week. Vox Lux stars Natalie Portman as a Lady Gaga-esque pop star who finds that an unusual set of circumstances bring her unexpected success. Uh, From what we've heard so far, it kind of sounds like the anti-star is born, which means I guess this is a musical. Uh, People are also saying it's Portman's greatest performance yet, and it also stars Jude Law and features a soundtrack comprised of original songs by Sia which I never miss. See ya. (laughs) And for some upcoming grant deadlines, the Sundance Documentary Fund has its deadline on December 16th. It has two um, sections throughout the year. So this one, if you get it in by December 16th, is considered for, um, you'll find out in March, basically. So this is a core component of Sundance Documentary Film Program. It's a competitive grant that looks for artful films about relevant topics, relevant to who, we don't know. Um, and it can get you twenty to $50,000, depending on the application type, which, uh, which consists of development, production, post-production, and audience engagement. This one provides grants to filmmakers worldwide for projects that display artful film language, effective storytelling, originality and feasibility, contemporary cultural relevance, and potential to reach and connect with its intended audience. Preference is given to projects that convey clear story structure, higher stakes and contemporary relevance, forward-going action or questions, demonstrated access to subjects, and quality use of film craft. And if you apply, let me know. I'll tell Bob you'll be all good. As long as it's relevant to Liz. 
<laughs> and on December 15th, there's a deadline for the Script Pipeline Great Movie Idea Contest. If you have a catchy log <laughs> Who line- Who created this, Borat? Yeah, I was going to say. If you, have a, if you have a catchy log line or better name for the <laughs> grant, if you have a catchy log line, synopsis, or video pitch, you could win $1,000 in pitch development from Script Pipeline. For the winner, they provide additional long-term assistance to refine the pitch or help the writer draft a polished screenplay. Their execs review the project and offer feedback at all stages of development. When the work is ready for circulation, they send the material to specific producers who would be a good match. They have a network of over 200 companies that include partners at Lakeshore Entertainment and others looking for relevant, high-concept, marketable films. Relevance. Something tells me that what's relevant to the script pipeline great idea movie contest is not the same <laughs> thing that's relevant to the Sundance Documentary Fund. And finally, our last deadline is for the ScreenCraft Cinematic Short Story Contest. On December 16th, that deadline happens. If you've got a short story with cinematic potential, you could win another $1,000, an introduction to a plethora of literary agents. Their jury is looking for short stories, not scripts, with special cinematic potential. Whether you're writing flash fiction or a novella, they want to read your story. The grand prize winner will receive 1K, as I said, and personal introductions to literary agents, managers, producers, and publishers. The top five finalists will be read by a network of over 40 literary and entertainment industry professionals. And now for some festival deadlines. With a late deadline of December 14th is the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, which takes place in Minneapolis, Minnesota, from April 4th, 2019 through April 20th. The MSPIFF marks its 38th year in 2019 and is the largest film festival in the upper Midwest region of the United States. Isn't there a rapper called Miss Piff? Miss Piff? Really? Yeah, I think well, so. Maybe she runs this festival. <laughs> Probably. Uh, it's Missy Elliott. Mm. Missy Elliott. Well, you can be sure to get your freak on at this festival. <laughs> Operated by the Film Society of Minneapolis-St. Paul, a nonprofit organization, this highly anticipated celebration of international cinema annually debuts more than 250 films to an audience of 45,000-plus and welcomes the attendance of more than 150 filmmakers from around the world. Also with the late deadline of December 17th is the Maryland Film Festival, which takes place in Baltimore, Maryland from May 8th through the 12th, 2019. Each year, the festival screens approximately 50 feature films and 75 short films of all varieties to tens of thousands of audience members. The festival prides itself on creating a unique, accessible, and competition-free atmosphere. Each year since 2004, the festival has dedicated its opening night to a collection of short films as well. The Maryland Film Festival has been named one of Mom's Movie Maker Magazine's 25 coolest film festivals in the world three times in recent years, 2014, 2015, <laughs> And 2017. Of course, I attended in 2016. <laughs> as, as That's not a joke. I'm not, it's not even joking. I did go in 2016, the one year it was not cool on this list. Uh, I had a great time. I thought it was very cool. But there goes my taste. Uh, <laughs> as well as earning repeated praise from national publications such as The New Yorker and Art Forum. You know, maybe it just went without saying that year. It's like that's the year you were there. It didn't need to be on the list. It was too cool. It was hot. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And the Newport Beach Film Festival has a deadline on December 21st. This takes place in Newport Beach, California from April 25th to May 2nd, 2019. It screens a diverse showcase of more than 300 films each year to over 54,000 attendees. It's a top 100 reviewed film festival on Film Freeway and on Movie Maker's 50 list. It has a ton of prizes. And now uh -oh. for weekly words of not Lizdom, not Ooh. Jim John Jizdom. Oh, gosh. <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, you, you've been sitting on these all this time? You could have used wiki words of wisdom. Would have been brilliant. I like Jim John jizzdom. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying. Could have been a great segment. But no, instead, it's weekly words of wisdom. It is. So um, now in theaters is the documentary Divide and Conquer, the story of Roger Ailes, which is about the C- former CEO and uh, co-producer of Fox News, the right-wing news outlet. Uh, and I had spoken with the filmmaker, Alexis Bloom, about making this film about someone who has, was he passed away in 2017, but before he passed away, there were a lot of sexual allegations that also came out about him. So regardless of his politics, you could say he was a very uh, creepy dude corner candidate. Um, so I had asked Alexis Bloom, when crafting a portrait of a polarizing figure such as this, you also have to show the person for who they are. And is there a difficulty in presenting a human side to someone who is responsible for such terrible things, or is it as effortless as it appears in your film? To which Bloom had responded, quote, Well, these people are human beings. Roger Ailes was a human. He's not a monster. He did monstrous acts, but to cast him off of the dung heap of otherness, you first have to realize that he's one of us. From better or worse, he was a more uncomfortable figure, but he was human. He grew up in a small town with the actor Austin Pendleton, and they did acting lessons together, and Austin is the perfect sort of person to illuminate his humanity, you know, to show that other half. If you demonize people, you end up with the same kind of divisiveness that Roger propagated, and I'm not in the business of the demon game. I thought this was interesting as documentary filmmakers can sometimes have a subject that is not someone they politically agree with, but in this case, due to the allegations, also morally agree with as well. And how are you still stopping yourself from getting the more subjective point of view, which is going to come out anyway. I mean, it's your film. You can't stop it from being subjective. It's coming from your eyes. But how do you still kind of maintain a, I guess, ironically enough, Fox News, fair and balanced uh, take on a subject like this? I thought that stood out. I think that's a really interesting and sort of common dilemma of documentary filmmakers. Like, you spend so much time with this person or with footage of this person that even if you don't agree with their beliefs, you have to sort of be in love with them in a certain kind of way. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, and now for some shout-outs. Uh, I want to congratulate Eric, yeah. <laughs> Eric's new best friend, Bing Liu. Oh, man. Maybe we'll hang out for New Year's. Bing oh, and I. that'll be cool. I got to go to Chicago. You could bing in the new year. Ta-da! <laughs> sorry, sorry. Anyway, Bing's film, Minding the Gap, dominated the International Documentary Awards, taking home Best Feature, Emerging Filmmaker, and Best Editing Prizes. This was also one of my favorite movies of the year, and we'll link to my interview with the filmmaker in the podcast post. And, of course, since this is... One of our last or our last episode before the holidays, I want to give my annual shout out to you all. We are so, so grateful for your listenership, for your comments, for your tweets, for all the support over the years. Um, It really means so much to us to hear that, you know, anything we've been able to say or share with you uh, has helped you make your films. And and we want to remind you that we're always with you and supporting you. And we know that uh, it's a tough business, but you can do it. So happy holidays. There it is. The one annual time you will hear that from any of us. The only time we care about the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> We're in a giving mood. That about wraps it up for this week's show. If you like it, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. You can read about everything we've talked about in the podcast posts associated with the podcast. And, at uh, nofilmschool.com. At, no, at nofilmschool. I don't know if you've heard of it, but <laughs> my name is John 
Fusco, and you can follow <laughs> me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Oh, that was a question you asked yourself there. Uh, I'm not sure anymore. I'm, I'm at Eric Lures, and I'm totally available. Eric with a K. <laughs> yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm at Liz Film. We are all at No Film School, and we won't see you next week, but we want to wish you a very happy holidays. Bye-bye. Ciao.